Thursday, August 28, 1986. It's a quiet morning in Rome, Georgia. An elderly woman dials the home of her older sister, Queen Madge White. No response. Worried, Mrs. Iva White stopped by her sister's modest, one-story home on Highland Circle. She called Rome City Police at 8.34 a.m. When they arrived, police found a scene of horror. The neat home lay ransacked. Footprints disappeared outside. And they found Queen White lying inside, dead. That discovery shook the community to its core and sparked a three decades long quest for justice. I'm your host, Grace Snell, and this is episode one of Georgia v. Foster. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Georgia v. Foster, a podcast investigating the struggle for justice when the stakes are highest, the death penalty. Our legal system stands on the idea that justice should be blind. But is it really? Who lives? Who dies? Who decides? On this show, we're unpacking the case of Timothy Tyrone Foster, a black man sentenced to death for murder by an all-white jury in 1987. Newspaper accounts of the murder reveal what happened next. Police arrived on site and found Mrs. White's body in a house that was in total disarray. Estimated time of death, midnight. Cause, strangulation. Queen White was 79 years old at the time of her death. She attended West Georgia, Shorter, and Berry Colleges, and worked as a fourth grade teacher for 35 years. A lifelong member of North Broad United Methodist Church, she taught Sunday school and sang in the choir. Because her husband of 36 years died in 1972, Queen White lived alone. Investigators pieced together the details of that tragic night. Queen White's attacker had removed an air conditioning unit and entered through a back window. She had been doing her kind of nightly routine. You know, you think of a person who, and the house is extremely neat. Like, you know, imagine your grandmother basically putting together this house. And uh, he had hidden, and so when she was going through, you know, to use the bathroom and do the things you do, he had basically jumped out and attacked her. That's John Bailey, editor of the Rome News Tribune. He's covered the Foster case in Rome for a decade. Let me offer a quick trigger warning before we go forward. What happened next is grave and horrible. If you're sensitive to graphic descriptions or listening with a younger audience, you might want to skip ahead. Police found Queen White with a broken jaw, a gash on her head and bruises and cuts on her body. She'd also been sexually molested with a salad dressing bottle. Queen White's attacker left her with talcum powder on her face and a blanket drawn up to her chin. Graphic details from a police video still haunt John Bailey. They show Miss White's body. I mean, just as a, as a person, me, you know, just as me, I'm seeing it again, and it was terrible. Like, you'd never want to see a, another human being in this position. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation arrived and marked off the house with yellow police tape. A special investigative team took up the case. Authorities posted an $8,000 reward for information. A list of stolen items was their best lead. Police kept on high alert for an assortment of household objects like silverware, lamps, and jewelry taken from Queen White's home. They go looking for him. Uh, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck. You know, this is a brutal murder. And they find footprints leaving the scene. Queen White's minister, the Reverend Leland Bagwell, told reporters she was one of the most gentle, kind, patient, and unselfish persons I have known. 
Grief swept the community. Queen White's obituary indexes her deep involvement in the lives of others. Member of the Georgia Education Association. Member of the National Retired Teachers Association. Member of the Ridge Valley Homemakers Club. Corresponding Secretary of the Salvation Army Ladies Auxiliary. Devotional Chairperson of the Model Chapter of the Farm Bureau. And Devotional Chairperson of the United Methodist Women Lamplighters. Queen White's murder evoked shock and fear among her neighbors. Elderly residents started leaving Highland Circle in the following days. One told reporters, I won't feel safe until they catch who it is. And when they do, I hope they punish him the way he should be punished, and not just put in prison a couple of years. The investigations yielded virtually nothing in its first month. The case isn't dead, but it is kind of languishing, right? I mean, you know, first couple of weeks, first couple of days, you're kind of expecting something, nothing's happening. Then, jackpot. Friday, September 26, 1986. Three police officers investigating a domestic dispute stumbled on a hot tip. A young couple's escalating argument had yielded some surprising information. And he's, he, according to her, says something like, you know, I'm going to kill you like I did that old lady. And she really felt it and felt that that was a serious thing. Investigators arrived on the scene at 4.30 p.m. The girlfriend told them where to find missing articles from Queen White's home. Detectives recovered them soon afterward. That's when investigators charged 18-year-old Timothy Tyrone Foster with Queen White's murder. Foster lived two blocks away from Queen White's house. He sometimes did yard work in Queen White's neighborhood. He had a juvenile police record. And he's black. By this time, Foster had also confessed to Queen White's murder and divulged confidential details of the crime scene. Police locked him up in Floyd County Jail on charges of murder and burglary. Manhunt over, police work done. The struggle for justice could now begin. Floyd County District Attorney Stephen Lanier vowed to make it a fight to the death. Lanier submitted a death penalty notice to the Superior Court of Floyd County on October 17, 1986. Understanding what happened next probably requires a grasp on the context of Foster's trial. 1980s Georgia was tough on crime, especially for a black man confessing to the brutal murder of a white woman. The U.S. Supreme Court gave its stamp of approval to Georgia's death penalty in Gregg v. Georgia 10 years earlier. Setting up the Gregg case, Georgia rewrote its law after the court found all existing state death statutes unconstitutional in Furman v. Georgia in 1972. Georgia's long history of slavery, lynching, and segregation must also be considered. I grew up in the Jim Crow South, and there were things that I noted early on and kind of shaped me, and I, I think this what created a passion in me for the little guy, the underdog, just making sure that people were treated fairly. And that's the important thing. That's Gary Parker. He's practiced law since the early 80s and worked on scores of death penalty cases. He grew up black in the heart of North Carolina clan country. Remember his name. He'll become a key player much later in the case. Parker graduated from Howard University's law school and started his career in Columbus, Georgia. The city was a hotbed of racial tension at the time. I was um, very cognizant of things racially in Columbus for quite some time. I, I think one of the things that stood out more sharply for me is that when I arrived there in 1968 to take basic training at Fort Benning, I came out of the train depot and the, there were still white and colored signs on the doors in 1968. And actually they did not come off until the late 70s, early 80s when federal funds were used to re redo the building. Parker entered death penalty work two years into his practice in the early 80s. He'd been active in civil rights causes for years. 
and sought to remedy the lack of adequate representation for black Americans. Nothing at the time guaranteed experienced lawyers for people on death row. In Georgia, as long as you are a breathing lawyer at that time, that's all it requires to be qualified. Parker says Muscogee County claimed more inmates on death row than any other Georgia county at the time. And attorneys used death penalty cases to move up the ranks. And there was this kind of custom and tradition. You get hired as an assistant district attorney, you move up eventually to become chief district attorney. And then the district attorney takes a death penalty case. And they, they were actually using death penalty cases to get themselves promoted to the bench and to become a judge. And then the chief assistant became the district attorney. And to be real candid, it was clearly a tag team effort between the judge and the district attorney in the death penalty cases. Parker developed an act for brokering plea deals to keep people off death row. Clients routinely waived parole privileges in exchange for their lives. Just speaking, just very frankly, in most of those situations, the only two people of color involved in it was myself and the client. Everyone else was white. And so, and most often, almost always, until in some of my latter cases, the victims were white. Back in Floyd County, race relations were a little better. The city was still navigating the fallout of the civil rights movement in the 60s, and at least four lynchings took place there in the early 1900s. Attitudes behind vigilante justice can trickle down for generations. Because what great granddaddy did, people still talk about, and those values are still there. And then, you know, in this environment where Fawcett, it was a few years back where they had a white supremacist and Klan rally in Rome, Georgia. This was not a place to be in to expect that you were going to have a fair trial. And you got you to trust the integrity of the jury. And I've had so many people look and say, yeah, I can be fair. And give you that, yeah, that smirking smile. Yeah, I can be fair. And, and you know they're lying. The Floyd County District Attorney responsible for prosecuting Foster, Stephen Lanier, had the reputation of being a colorful character. I wish I could talk to Lanier directly about his decisions and motivations in the Foster case, but he died in 2018. I have to rely on descriptions from others. Bob Fennell is an attorney who worked with Lanier back in the 80s. Fennell even helped run one of Lanier's DA campaigns. Steve wanted to be somebody, and I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but it just, he was, it didn't surprise any of us in the bar when he ran for district attorney. I mean, he, he, he's very aggressive, and he was aggressive in the courtroom, but he was also aggressive outside the courtroom. So he was consistent. You'll hear more from Fennell in our next episode. John Bailey, editor of the Rome News Tribune, also met Lanier. He interviewed him 30 years later about his work on the Foster case. But yeah, so yeah, he called back. He said, John, I'm going to give you an exclusive. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> he loves saying stuff like that. Here's what Bailey remembers about Lanier. Steve Lanier was a big personality. Um, he had a big personality. You could see him running for office. You could see him loving being a DA. And I remember him actually talking about how many bodies isn't the right word, but basically how many people, how many death penalties he had on his belt. Him and, you know, other guys would compare, other prosecutors in the state would compare like how many bodies you got on your belt, meaning like how many death penalty cases you have successfully prosecuted. And, you know, and he was a good attorney, right? Um, and he knew what he was doing. Doug Pullen, a visiting attorney from Muscogee County, joined Lanier's team as assistant DA. Pullen had already handled five death penalty cases, and Fennell says other attorneys called him Dr. Death as a result. The last major complicating factor in Foster's case was a Supreme Court decision five months earlier, 
Batson v. Kentucky. Batson is a defining case on racial discrimination in U.S. law, and it sent shockwaves through the entire system. Lawyers didn't know what to do with it. Uh, district attorneys didn't know what to do with it. Batson addressed abuse of a legal tool called peremptory strike. Lawyers exercised it since the 1790s to remove potential jurors, no questions asked. After the Civil War, lawyers often wielded it to keep juries white. The Supreme Court banned the practice in 1880, but there was no clear standard to enforce it until Batson in 1986. Batson furnished defendants the power to appeal strikes they believed to be grounded in racial bias. Prosecutors had to provide race-neutral justifications for strikes if defendants raised a Batson claim. One quick clarifying note. Both defenders and prosecutors consider a host of demographic information informing juries. Both sides do everything they can to craft a jury favorable to their views. But it's unconstitutional to strike jurors purely based on race. In the aftermath of Batson, many prosecutors didn't know exactly where the legal lines fell. Some started brainstorming ways around the new rules and made up reasons to cover racially motivated strikes. The district attorney and the race just the most nebulous and phony and ridiculous uh, non-racial basis that they said that they were using. Even with Batson, defending a black man charged with murder in Floyd County after the defendant confessed would seem to be a nearly impossible task. And that's what we're up against when you go in there trying to defend someone in a case like this, you know, get in this argument going back and forth with your client trying to convince your client to take a plea and this and that and that and this and, and whatever else you just have to say, your client, you picked the wrong county to kill a white person in. You picked the wrong county. Though evidence and circumstances condemned Foster, the law required and even guaranteed due process. Attorney Bob Fennell, the new kid in town, drew the short straw. That and more next time on Georgia v. Foster. Georgia V. Foster is reported and hosted by Grace Snell. This episode is produced by Anna Rich. Music courtesy of pixabay.com sounds from BBC Sound Effects. For more episodes, head to vikingfusion.com or find us on Spotify. Thanks for listening.